Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Yelda Ulls, a studio exec turned UCLA research leader and media consultant. And after working as a studio exec for both Sony and MGM, Yelda pursued her PhD in psychology at UCLA, eventually founding the Center for Scholars and Storytellers. It's a research organization dedicated to educating entertainment and media industry decision makers understand how to craft stories that help young people thrive. Yelda's research is focused on how we can be responsible when it comes to representation and unconscious bias in our storytelling. And she has worked with influential media platforms like Stars, Pixar, and Google as a consultant. Today, we are going to discuss how her research can inform the way we approach the page. So, hey, Yelda. Hey there. So happy to be here. Thank you. And uh, thank you for reading off my bio accurately. <laughs> oh. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I've been really looking forward to you coming. I I was lucky enough to go to one of your gatherings. Um, uh, and really, it was so impactful to me as a storyteller, uh, the, spe- the work that you're doing. And I really... Uh, wanted you to come on so that everybody could get uh, the benefit of what I got that day. Um, so thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, well, we're so grateful you have interest in this work and that it's helpful and useful because that was one of the reasons I wanted to launch the center as a former movie exec and current uh, researcher. I felt like I was in a good place to create research insights that might be helpful for storytellers. So Getting that validation from you is great. Oh, no, and it is. It's really, it's truly wonderful, needed work. Um, Now, before we get into our questions for you and discussing it, we do start each episode with what we call Adventures in Screenwriting, which is basically our week and how our our week went. Um, So uh, I think you're up for sharing that part of the show. Yes, how your week went. Yes, absolutely. I will let Lorian go first so she can uh, show you how it's done. So uh, my week, uh, I have spent a lot of this week, you know, getting ready for the holidays because my family celebrates uh, Hanukkah and Christmas. Uh, That was a decision we made. Did she go away? I want to make sure we might have lost video. No, I'm here. I'm just closing doors. Sorry. Oh, okay. I was like, wait. Okay. okay. No worries. and I've been uh, Christmas I've, and Hanukkah. You can pick it up. From Christmas then. and Hanukkah. Yeah. And uh, I've been. Uh, it's been a very medically complex week, which is always challenging uh, with my daughter. Um, but uh, mostly, what I'm trying to do is break some patterns that I have in my life because I realize that I like myself less when I'm engaged in those patterns of behavior. So I have had to do some hard examination about my behaviors, which is always unpleasant. Um, And then trying to figure out where they come from, how I can change them, which of course leads to breaking patterns in my work and my approach to work and how I think about it, which is also uncomfortable. So I've been very uncomfortable this week with the amount of money I'm spending, with uh, my daughter's health, with like examining my behaviors and how I respond to things. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing for me is trying to be less responsive. Um, you know, in fight or flight, I realized I'm full flight. I'm full fight. I thought I was flight, but uh-uh, I am fight. And so I have to stop matching people's energies. And I think that uh, affects my work because I, if I start to cycle a little bit, like overthinking and, oh my God, I will match and up my own energy and then match and up it until I'm like in this cyclone of like, fear and anger and rage. And then that's when I just start crying and then eat a bunch of chips. So, which is not bad. Crying and chips are always amazing, but you know, so I'm trying to uh, examine whatever those triggers are, which is awful. It's hard. And I am not great at it yet, but I'm, you know, 
trying really hard. <laughs> so that's been work. my week. You're doing the work. You're doing the work. Doing the work. But it is so connected to my writing and how I see myself as a professional and my goals and my ability to remember things and stay focused. And it's just, it's just so, again, surprising to me when I break cycles in my own life, how that is so I'm breaking cycles in my work that aren't always healthy too. So that's been my week. I, I suspect it will be an ongoing conversation I'm having with myself. (laughs) Awesome. That's good. That's a good week. I feel like Lauren, I I don't know if you feel this way, but I find that the microscope on myself seems to focus, especially intensely around the holidays. I don't know if that's, maybe that's something our listeners can relate to too, but it's like, we're approaching the end of the year. It's like, what have I accomplished? What have I done? Why are the holidays so expensive? What's wrong with me? I don't know if I ju- I've been feeling, thank you for sharing, I guess is what I'm saying. Cause I've been feeling that very acutely, especially in the last couple of weeks. I thought you said cutely instead of acutely. And I'm like, well, it's not cute over here. <laughs> you may be experiencing that cutely, but not me. It's messy. Yeah. <laughs> no, but how was your week? Oh, well, I am, I can't, I don't think I can top that for truth and honesty and, you know, just really sharing and keeping it real. So thank you. If you want me to keep it real, I can, but I don't think your listeners know me that well. So I'll just say I'm going through some of the same things, but, um, well, I had an interesting week. So Thanksgiving was the week before and all through Thanksgiving, I was dreading. I had to give two talks Thursday. I did the keynote for the TV Academy Inclusion Summit, their very first Inclusion Summit. And I was the keynote. So I was honored and terrified. Then I did on Friday, I had to go to UC Irvine and I had to give a talk in front of a whole bunch of academics and students. So all week Thanksgiving, I'm dreading it. I'm dreading it. I'm like, oh God, I don't want to give these talks. I don't want to do this. I don't want to put myself out there. And then I did it. I did, you know, Thursday. I loved it. I felt really good. I got nice feedback. People were nice. Um, then Friday, Friday morning, I'm like, oh, life is kind of boring. There's no shape. <laughs> so like, funny. Oh. <laughs> we are the same creature, you and I. <laughs> I was like, well, well, congratulations on those talks. That's really important stuff. Good work. Yeah, the talks. Went I'm well. glad you got positive out of it instead of the. Oh my God, what did I say? Oh no, I get those too. When I I also have written a book called Media Moms and Digital Dads. It's a parenting book about parenting in the digital age. And when I would give book talks, and there'd be like the one person who hated what I was saying, and 40 people who loved it, I'd obsess over that one person, yes. and they would ruin the rest of the day. Yeah. So. Yes. That is part of the human brain. I don't know if it's survival <laughs> instinct you know, or what yeah. it is, but that is yeah. just so normal. Oh my God. It must, it's evolutionary, so it must be something. <laughs> something. Totally. How about you, Meg? Uh, my week was, um, you know, even when you're doing something that you love with people that you love and you feel so honored and it's amazing and it's going fine, sometimes the stress can just fry your brain. Um mostly the stress I put on myself of what's the answer? Why don't I have the answer? I need to have the answer. We're behind. Why don't I have the answer? But, you know, it's a lot of internal stress that I put on myself. Um, But I did try to use it this week to, instead of that thing attacking me, that stress um, and yelling at me, I tried to open the door and let the lava, what we call lava, let the vulnerability come in. And, you know, in the middle of a meeting, I just was, I just told a story that, Honestly, it wasn't very flattering of me, um, but it it was to the point of what we were trying to dig into. And it kind of opened the room up. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes just being brave and it, it, I almost got to a frenzied internal state uh, of stress that I was just like, fuck it, I'm jumping in. You know what I mean? It was just, uh, and it really does help you get to better storytelling. And um, I, so again, the lesson I learn every time is, Sometimes that stress isn't always bad. It's it's kind of a ramping to, to, get, to get brave or it's trying to push you towards something if you listen to it and you let it be uh, the alarm that it is uh, or, the, or the friend that it is. Um, I also adapted to my stress by doing what I love, which is eating cookies. 
<laughs> and um, because it's the holidays, I can stress shop. <laughs> I am like allowed to stress shop. Okay, I did buy some things for myself. Hot. Of course. So I'm taking it out of my stress shop. I should be keeping track now of it. You'll I, wrap it up and put it under the tree. <laughs> I should. I really should. Instead, I'm wearing it around, you know, showing off my ring, which, by the way, is a Buddha ring that I bought for myself so that when I'm stressing out, I can look down and remember to breathe and, you know, try to be in the present moment, not project forward or go back, just be here, just breathe. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I'm still doing my adaptations, uh, but I, uh, I, 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 that's just, that was my week. All right. Let's get into to, uh, some questions for uh, Yelda. Um, so can you talk about your time as a student executive? What did you learn in that position uh, and kind of how you made that transition? Yeah. So you and I knew each other back then. Um, and uh, so I started, I, I grew up in Berkeley and a, a child of academics and I had no idea anything about the business. And I got an MBA at UCLA and um, I ended up realizing, oh, there are people in the entertainment business. There are people that write scripts. There are executives that work with them. There are marketing people, this whole business. And so that got me interested and I got obsessed. And so I worked in the movie part of the business. Um, Stephanie Elaine, um, who was a great content person, producer was my mentor. And, and you know, I actually, so I worked at MG, uh, no, Sony was my first job. Then I went to New Line. And at New Line, I got a movie made called Mi Familia, My Family, starring um, Edward James Olmos and Jimmy Smith. My boss thought it was the world's worst script. She said it was like um, uh, reading, watching paint dry, reading it. And I fought for it. And I'm a child of immigrants. I'm a, you know, my parents are Persian. And so this story was a story of immigrants. And I was really, really into it. And Francis Ford Coppola produced it, Child of Immigrants. You know, I just thought it was a universal story. Luckily, it got very good coverage. And at New Line, the distribution marketing person could push something through. So my passion, the good coverage, and Mitch Goldman pushed it through. And this movie, they've been trying to get made for 10 years. It finally got it made. So then I was like, that's what it's like. You just fight for what you believe in and people will make it. Never happened again to any of my movies. You know, everything got sidelined, you know. And I had seen witnessed Stephanie with Boys in the Hood, and then she did El Mariachi. So I was like, oh yeah, you're just passionate. So then I went to a place where I was told it's called um at the time it was live entertainment, known for the Menendez brothers. Um, their their dad ran it. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs was the movie they made. And I made a lot of movies there, um, but they were you know, targeted to boys. They were, they, you know, they're still saying this. I just read it somewhere that girls won't, girls will see movies with boys starring boys, but boys will not go see movies starring girls. And so, you know, I had to make movies for boys and, you know, what they, the powers that be thought boys wanted to see. So, and then my last job was MGM and it, it was four quadrant, you know, big movies. And I just realized you know, through that process that the movies I like to make that often portrayed a marginalized community or, you know, were these sort of, you know, underdog makes good or, you know, these these movies about small character pieces. I did Steve Buscemi's first directing piece, um, uh, Trees Lounge, and I did Reservoir, um, no, I didn't do Reservoir Ducks. I did um, Permanent Midnight. Ben Stiller was in it. I did these small movies and I realized studios didn't want to do that. So I ended up when I had kids, um, I produced, produced in quotation marks, didn't get anything made, <laughs> but produced for a while and then stepped off and decided to go back to school, which, you know, everybody does, right? Go get a PhD. So you got your PhD and and why, why the turn towards the research that you're doing and starting, you know, this incredible organization? Well, I think I got the PhD, I studied how media impacts kids. And through, at the beginning, I was doing this research and my kids were, it was right when the iPhone launched and I was terrified. Um, 
you know, so my research was sort of like looking at the negative impact of media. And through work I did with Common Sense Media, the nonprofit, I realized there's a lot of research on the positive impact of media. And then I also realized there were studies that I felt were useful for storytellers. And most of the, many of the organizations that try to share research with um, the entertainment business, they are um, run by academics. And I, you know, and a lot of them also operate on you're doing this wrong um, versus here's how you do it right. And I really like the Gina Davis um, Institute. I think they really started something. And because Gina understood the entertainment business and Madeline Denono, they, I feel they were effective because they didn't shame. They, they looked at the reality, but they went around and they shared it in a way that resonated. And, and since I have a research background too, I can also really understand the research. So I felt I could bridge these worlds and bring research insights to storytellers in a way that they might resonate and um, in a way that's, that helps them do their jobs better versus, you know, telling them what they're doing wrong. Well, I love that because that's really why I wanted you to come on the show, because I think you have such amazing tools, you know, your sheets that that writers can look at for different categories, which I'd love to make available to our listeners, maybe over on our Facebook page. Um, so let's just talk about some of those tools in terms of, you know, what is unconscious bias and some of the tools you've you've developed to help writers with those kind of solutions. Yeah. So when we started, we really, and I want, I want to also say that as a former storyteller, um, well, I mean, I was an executive, but I was, you know, think of myself as a storyteller. I, I believe what you guys do offers a lot to the research process. And if, and we include, you know, the event you went to, we really wanted to hear from you guys. What are you thinking about? How can we design research? How can we design tools that are helpful? I believe the expertise goes both ways. So it's not just me giving you expertise. It's you giving me expertise on what the audience needs. What are your roadblocks? How do you engage? Um, you know, you guys know how to engage people in a way no academic does. You know, they get like five people reading their articles. I mean, so many students leave academia because they're like, I just don't want to write things for seven people, you know. Um, but some of the tools, so so when we started, we said, okay, diversity, authentically inclusive representation, we call it AIR, is a very important um, uh, initiative for us. And so one thing that we did is we decided to see if having authentically inclusive representation, if a piece of content has it, does it make more money at the box office? And we did a study that we released in 2020 where we found, and this is all available on our website for free. We have business statistics um, that you can, you know, say, hey, I want to have a, you know, this, this color lead or this kind of community. Um, we found that the large budget movies in particular make $32 million more at the box office in opening weekend if they have authentically inclusive representation. And that's more than what's on the screen or behind the screen. It's also the storytelling itself. Then we replicated that study with in partnership with Creative Artists Agency, and we found the same thing. And now we're going to be releasing that four times a year, and we're going to try to look at TV too just to keep pounding to the powers that be that having women and having people of color and having queer identities and disabled, these, these, these voices are really um, caring more and more about what's on screen and they'll, they'll go to, they'll show up if you make content that resonates for them. Okay. Then I have um, tip sheets. So Meg, saw one of our very, um, when we did a tip sheet because so much work is great work like Gina Davis is on um, female representation, but people have to think about male representation. And if you're gonna shift the way people think about women, you have to also shift the way we think about men. And um, also this generation is so gender fluid. So um, we have to sort of shift the way we think about everything, um, but, we decided to look at the way that, and I'm not gonna use toxic masculinity because that offends somebody, but it's some people, but it's how do our men, men and boys represented on screen and how can we evolve that to, to make them just 
show up in a realistic way. Because if you think about it, if we're pushing women to be in the C-suite and we're saying they can do this, then there's going to have be less roles for men, right? We're, we're, we've been spending a lot of energy um, helping women see themselves in roles that are or jobs that are traditionally male oriented, but we're not spending the same energy helping men see themselves in roles that are traditionally female oriented because we need to shift that and show them being caring. And so we, what we did with these tip sheets is we give you a research insight, we give you like 10 different things you can think about, you know, show boys um, doing chores because boys, um, men still do, you know, females still do two and a half more hours of chores a week, you know, show boys playing with dolls because it can build empathy, show, um, you know, men having female friendships because men who have female friendships are less likely to think of females as sexual conquests only, you know, things like that, that are fairly, they're, they're really meant to be thought starters. And we have them around unconscious bias. We have one around race. Um, we have them around social, emotional learning, um, and they're all on our site and easy to access gender. We did foster gender. Youth and foster youth which I, I I, was we have not done one for foster youth but we i think the think tank for inclusion and equity out of the writer's guild is doing one we did a series of videos little selfies of foster youth um and we partnered with youtube kids and it has 40 million views on these on these um little videos of foster youth saying hey my name is demonte and you know i go to ucla and i play in a band and by the way i'm a former foster youth so they're leading with different identities than just just this one that you know has carries a lot of shame that's awesome can you talk a little bit i mean i love that i love leading with the positive it's such a brain shift for me like listening to like oh Right. Like, how do you reframe the conversation to be more positive instead of pointing the finger, uh, which is part of my development process personally right now <laughs> with my cycle breaking. So thank you so much for seeing. I am going to cry on this episode. It's resonating. Um, right there. Um, can you talk, can you define unconscious bias for us? Because I yes. think we throw these kinds of words around a lot, uh, but we don't really, what are we talking about? So the actual original term is implicit bias versus explicit bias. So that's what the scientific term was. And unconscious bias, I think, has, has come to be something we talk about because that was easier for people to understand than implicit bias. Um, so basically, and I'm just going to take you through how kids learn about um, race, for example. They start learning about race and color of people's skin at three months. And around, you know, they're internalizing it. And, and then around five, they are talking about, um, uh, they, we, we, they're picking up on the biases that are in our culture. They may also be in the home. They're picking up on everything that is we see in the world. So what they see in the media, if, you know, I have a really sad piece of research I can share about um, how, you know, how women and and kids of color, how it impacts their self-esteem. Um, so they're picking up all these things. So they start thinking people with darker skin, you know, there's more negative biases, you know, and, and what ends up happening is around between five to seven, they start to, as they're um, starting to pay more attention to other adults, could be because they're going to school, they start to understand that they speak very honestly, basically, um, you know, they'll just, if, you know, they'll just say something that to a grown-up, it's like, oh, you can't say that. And they pick up on the social norms. So, uh, you know, oh, I'm not supposed to say, like, I, I saw this kid who was six years old and she said, my mommy doesn't let me play with Mexicans um, on the schoolyard. And this little girl was crying and she's like, I'm not Mexican, I'm Indian. And the little, the other girl was like, well, my mom, I don't care. She says you can't play with them. And I, I was there witnessing it. I got very angry. And I told the little girl that this was racist and inappropriate. So she, what then ends up happening around those ages, it's they internalize it. They realize they're not allowed to say it. And then the bias goes implicit. It's unconscious. It's underneath. They, but it's still there. And now they're starting to understand it's not socially acceptable, but 
they, it's, it's almost impossible to get rid of unless you're actively getting rid of it. You are actively com combating it. So if you've heard about the colorblind versus color brave conversation where you should talk about race at a very young age. We don't say everybody's, I don't notice skin color because kids do. Um, and you know, then there's the anti-racist versus you're not a racist, the anti-racist um, movement, which is like, you have to be active to combat these things. Because if you don't, they're there, they're inside of you and they're being reinforced by everything in our culture. And so you may not understand it. It's so deep inside of you, but the way that they test it, do you know about how they test it? So you can go on Harvard's, um, Harvard has the IAT test. And basically what they do is they show you images, and this is for race, of black faces and white faces. And they do an association with good words and bad words. And if you take longer to associate the black faces with the good words than the white people, you have bias because we have learned to do these associations. So that's, and they can test it on all sorts of different things. And it's important for writers and storytellers of every kind, because I know we have people who are uh, graphic designers and all kinds of uh, different kinds of storytellers who listen to the podcast, that we could be, um, we could be, communicating our unconscious bias unconsciously, which I know sounds like a, but that is literally what's happening that you don't even yeah. realize. And that's why I love your organization so much and the tool sheets so that you can at least start to become aware of, of what this is and do some shifting in your storytelling. And what I love about storytelling is if you shift it in your storytelling, it will shift it inside you. Like it is going to be something that can be a beautiful way to start changing your own unconscious biases. Um, what's your opinion on um, storytellers, let's say a white, uh, let's say white female storyteller like me, um, wants to write a person of color of a different uh, a gender. Uh, let's just take something, uh, you know, maybe there maybe an LGBTQ or like what's what in terms of what is your guidance towards that? Because um, that seems um, like now you're really into a different uh, set of of questions yeah and this this is so are we do a summit every year and um in our very first summit last year in person 2021 we actually had a panel called who gets to tell the story to address this very question and we had um Nancy Cantor was the moderator and we had you know Janet Yang we had um Dana Stevens we had um execs from Disney. Um, we had this group of people we had talking about this, you know, because some people really feel that you have to have the identity of the character, um, lead character to write the story. But I don't think that's true. Um, I think it's, it's a craft. It's a, it's an art. It's the whole point is you're, you're, you're going to have to put yourself into the head of lots of characters, not just the lead. And it would be impossible for you to have everyone's identity. And even if you had, you know, the same race identity or the same sexual orientation identity, it doesn't mean you would have other aspects of that character's identity. So um, I believe anyone should be able to write anything, um, but here's what we came up with in that um, that conversation was um, three questions you should ask yourself before you take that on. And it requires the digging deep that um, we were talking about earlier, you know, Lorian was talking about. Um, why do you want to tell this story? You know, really thinking about that. How much do you invest in your own creative writing, reading and experience with this particular culture? And why do you wanna write from this character's POV? And just do an honest, honest assessment of that with yourself. And if you um, can answer those questions in a way that feels authentic and honest and passionate, and like, this is why I really, and I've, this is, you know, I'm not just writing this because that's the thing is a lot of people have in the past would do it without really doing the investment in time and energy. Um, then I think 
go for it because you guys are storytellers. You know, you're, you're, you understand the craft of storytelling. And that part of that is being able to tell someone else's story. I do think it's also um, somewhat um, the, the the weight of this is is on the the people who are making it in terms of the buyers and the financiers because um, I don't have a problem of course with men telling women's stories just to use that as my platform um, but I I have a problem with it when it's all men telling women's stories like at what point do the women get to tell their own stories, right? And and I would assume, I'm not a person of color, that that applies to a lot of different aspects of, yes, anybody can tell any story, but we also need to hear from the unique views of a person of color or a gender or, you know, like, so I do think, I do want also the 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 people who are making these choices to, you know, I, as a female, I often get, um, hey, can you do a rewrite on this? And you realize, oh, it's because it's a guy and you <laughs> want to put a woman's name on this, right? Versus, you know, it just, that is also a part of it for me in terms of my soapbox is um, let's make sure that those voices um, are also involved. But I think those three questions are really, really good and helpful to me. Personally, I had just a supporting character in my passion project that is a person of color and it's historical and blah, blah, blah. But, and I really have been thinking about it a lot and my responsibility mm -hmm. and those questions really helped me a lot. So thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think those questions are really uh, amazing for any story you're telling. You know, why, I just those are great questions to ask for any project, for anything. Uh, so I'm working on a, um, a a pitch and I'm trying to figure out like why this is important to me. And it's like, oh, right. Why do I want to tell the story from this character's point of view to, mm -hmm. to talk about this central question? And mm -hmm. I just, that's so pivotal for all of us. And then it can get granular and more specific. Mm -hmm. uh, but thank you for that. Thank you for really <laughs> nailing those questions down that make it seem like, oh, I can do that. All I have to do is ask myself questions. I think when we encounter our own unconscious bias, we, I tend to like guilt, blame, I can't do this. I don't deserve to be able to tell this story. And then, nope, can't, too scary. Instead of asking questions and trying to think about it from a character place, uh, from a set story place, um, and, uh, you know, getting out of my own head and beating myself up, which is my, which is my go-to. But I, that piece is uh, really critical, right? I, how do you deal with that when it's like, oh gosh, I stepped in a big pile of shit here that I didn't realize I had. It's super embarrassing. What is a good tip for like acknowledging that and recovering from that so you can keep moving on with so the you're project? you're talking about if something comes out and you're, yeah. And like in your writing, like you've written something that you think this is a true thing and you don't realize that it comes from the five-year-old version of yourself learning this on the playground from something that you heard. Right. Yeah. And they, I mean, I think just owning it, I mean, being truthful and authentic and saying, I'm sorry, I'm still learning. I'm not perfect. I'm, um, I'm, you know, I'm open to listening. And, you know, there are a lot of people are, who say, or or tell me what to read, or I will go and do my own research because some people feel like they shouldn't have to teach you. Um, I'm pretty sure you've heard that too. Um, so really just saying the truth. I mean, nobody's perfect. We get, we do workshops with studios. So we have done them with Disney. Disney's a huge partner for us. And um, we, you know, YouTube, we've done them, Lego, we've done them with all sorts of, we're doing it with gaming, Activision. Um, so wherever kids, young people are, we, and we teach them around diversity, equity, inclusion. We just did one for Silvergate. Um, we are, and we, um, I started by saying I'm a woman of color, I identify as a woman of color and an immigrant, and um, I'm going to say things wrong. <laughs> I've been you know, I, and I have a PhD and an MBA, I have all these letters, but you, you know, I mean, and, and just listening to the people, there are people with lived experience. We do them on colorism, had this incredible one where, where people would talk about their family, um, getting, uh, buying the bleach products for their skin. Like just pe many people in these big rooms, these zoom rooms have experienced some of these things. So just, just allowing for you self-compassion, <laughs> allowing for that. 
Yeah. What what for you in your research, what would you say is something surprising when you were researching or doing the, the work that you that you was surprising to you? Well, I have two pieces of research that made me want to launch the center. And um I I shared it with Jeff and Savannah. So I will share with you guys. So don't give it away. So the one the other aha for why I started it is because um I believe that. You know, I, I got a PhD in developmental psychology and I have kids. I really did learn because I was getting it while my kids were growing. So it was project-based learning. And I, um, but a lot of people who write content for young people don't have children, right? I mean, or the, you know, and they are not, and they, you certainly don't have time for, you know, the deep dive into developmental psychology, you may read some books. And so, and kids learn and it's impossible to put yourself back at their age because just like that five-year-old, you know, you can't remember access that unconscious bias. You can't remember, you know, each age and stage, you have your own learning and your own lens looking, reflecting back. And so, but researchers study this stuff. So, you know, kids learn differently and counterintuitively than you would think from an adult point of view. So this was a study where they were trying to decide um, how do kids learn how to be honest? It's a guy who's been studying this for a very long time. And he thought about the moral fables that we read to children to try to teach them to be honest. One of them's Pinocchio. One of them is Boy Who Cried Wolf. Another one is George Washington and the Cherry Tree. And he put kids in a situation where it'd be very hard for them to, um, tell the truth basically. And he read them this story, one of those stories. And in only one of them did a higher percentage of kids tell the truth when asked um, at the end of it. And which one would you guys think it is? Well, I think it's Pinocchio. <laughs> which one do you think, think, Meg? The boy who cried wolf, because like, that's what my kids referred to. So it wasn't either of those. It was George Washington and the cherry tree. And so kids, storytellers always say boy who cried because most of them say that because high stakes, really high stakes, right? And Pinocchio is the second one. Uh, Jeff said, I know it's not George Washington. That's the obvious one, <laughs> which is not obvious. And the reason is when kids are really little, they... Um, are more attuned to um, positive consequences versus negative consequences. And when there's something so negative, they get really scared and focused on that and not on the lesson that's in there. And so in George Washington, which also might be because it was also relatable, it's a dad, and a, but it was the dad rewarded him for doing the right thing versus he got punished for doing the wrong thing. So I was like, if I share this with storytellers, I bet I didn't know the answer. I would have said boy who cried wolf. And I read that and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so in again, with the positive, again, with the positive. So again, yep. the storytelling, children are going to learn uh, or engage with the story more with positive uh, results or outcomes than the yeah. negative. Rather than these, because we know also from research in general that, that you know, punishment doesn't, work well we know it from the prison complex like right you know like like this is that's what our whole culture is founded on half the time but it actually doesn't work and rewards work better um and you know there, some people say intrinsic rewards work the best because they're the reward of doing it because you want to but extrinsic rewards can work as well external rewards um then then, you know, saying, I'm going to control your behavior, or I'm going to say no, you know. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, and I'll, I'll give you the one other sort of counterintuitive piece of research that I love. So um, do you guys ever see Clifford, the big red dog? Yeah. So that, that, there's an episode where um, a new dog comes to the neighborhood and doesn't have a leg. And the whole point of the episode was that, um, the dogs just like them and they can all play. It was inclusion. But for 11 minutes of the episode, Clifford and the other dogs were like, 
Oh, we can't play with that dog. We might catch what that dog has. We can't play with that dog. We might hurt that dog. Just kept going and going. And the afterwards, the researcher asked young kids, you know, these were again, five to seven year olds, um, what they thought. And they were all, their, their message, the takeaway was we could catch what that dog had. Then the researchers took out the 11 minutes, put something random in it, and then got to the conclusion and they, the kids actually got the message of the, the um, show. Oh, so funny. the point of that is, first of all, it's very hard for young kids to like subplots and, you know, actions and constant, like that's a long time to get to the message. But second of all, you know, the fear, they were focused on the fear and not the resolution. Yeah, that's really amazing. That's really interesting. Sorry, my it feels like that's why Sesame Street has such a positive impact and Mr. Rogers, because it's all been, it's, you know, and even the electric company, it's all very about curiosity, generosity, trying new things, but always about asking questions rather than making those assumptions that like, that's a better model of behavior to teach and learn. And I'm still working on it. But um, it's so true. And developmental yeah. psychologists were you, I mean, the whole theory of Sesame Street is we bring these, you know, people who advertisers who know how to engage and then researchers who study this and we make a show and look how long it's lasted. And today I was on a call and somebody said the same about Degrassi. Do you guys know Degrassi? She learned all this stuff about bipolarism from Degrassi and they, they do the same thing on that show and they show you the arc of the character and what would really happen. And um, so that's my, av av um, my, I'm advocating for research insights into content. Yes, yes. And, and our all, all storytellers should be researching and especially psychologically and developmentally, if you're writing for children. And once you get into the teens and writing for teens, is there anything insights you can give if either we have a teen character or we're writing for a teenage audience? Um, yeah, I am so glad you've asked me that because, and you, you know this, I think, a lot of people write for teens and the way that they do it is, oh, I remember my teenagehood, so I'm just going to write that. Or I'm going to, you know, my kids, I'll look at my, my kids like that. So I'm going to, you know, assume all kids like that are like that, but they're not all the same. So we are actually creating a program where we're training teens to um, 24 diverse teens from across the country, training them to go back to their communities and do research on an issue that they care about in media and then helping them learn enough about the industry that they can then share their thoughts with content creators. And so I'm curious, you guys, if we actually got these teens to a point where they might be helpful to your process, would you ever want to consult with them? Or yeah, yes. or have them on the show. Yes, yes. 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 love the show. Yeah, I'm working on a preteen show right now. Like the characters are 12. And it's like, I remember that time kind of what I want to write about, but like for a different audience. So like, how do I make that? Yeah, you don't always have access to that age group as a writer um, necessarily. Um, I, yeah, I'd love, I think something that would be amazing. Yeah. Okay. So we're developing that. They, they, this summer they did their first version and they, they talked about at the summit that one of them did a study on euphoria and does it, um, lead to kids wanting to do sex and drugs and 85% of the team said no, <laughs> you know, um, but so I'll tell you one of the findings we found. So we did a teen survey of 660 teens across the country, um, you know, racially, gender, geographically balanced. And we found that only 4.4% of them wanted aspirational programming. It was like, and to, uh, we said aspiration was being rich and famous. You know, aspiration mean lots of things, but that's how we well, define it. Because it's the opposite of what they're making. Exactly. I see you nodding. What do you think? Yeah. So what, Savannah? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Meg. Sorry, you can cut all that nonsense. Sorry. What do they want? <laughs> what do they want if they don't want aspirational? So they want hopeful stories. Uh, well, they. So they said that. So that question, the aspirational one, was we asked them about five things and we said, you know, 
why do you use, why do you watch stuff? So what, you know, it's like for aspirational content, for, um, you know, to escapism, to learn, blah, blah, blah. So the number one was sort of just to zone out and escape and have fun. And then the um, second one was to actually learn about the world. And it was pretty close. So, um, you know, there's this term um, called, you don't, you didn't, I can't even say, um, eudaimonic entertainment, which is you watch it to get purpose and learn. And I feel like that's what a large 25% of teens were saying. We also gave them a long list of topics and we asked them what they wanted. Um, and what we found was that the number one thing that they wanted was um, hopeful stories, as I said. Um, and then they wanted um, lives unlike their own, um, which we took to being diversity culture and family was high on the list. Mental health, and th these were teens 13 to 18 and uh, friendships. So we're actually digging deeper into that family question because you know there's so many shows that don't have families and you know and and it's all about these kids because you know the content creators are probably like oh my kids don't want to be around me so no kids want to be around their families um but the reality is that um a lot of teens i don't they don't see their families and they want to see the you know some of the good stuff of the families reflected oh wow that's awesome isn't that cool yeah, well I got four out of five on my current show. Okay. <laughs> yes, good. That's great. Oh, actually, was, actually, I have guess what five. Was last I do on have this. family. So, sorry, I got four. I so got five out of five. My, of take my research. Yeah. Oh and yeah, I'm bringing it to the pitch. yeah. Take the study and say, look, <laughs> this is what they want. That's so good, you guys. That's so good. I, I hope all of our listeners are hearing how what gold this is for so many reasons for authenticity for better storytelling the ability to sell your project. Like it's so good. I really highly recommend everybody go over to the site. So uh, Yelda, where should they go if they want more information? What's your site? What's your website? Scholarsandstorytellers.com. So just.com. Yeah. Spelled out with plural um, and um, sign up for our newsletter that goes out once a month. We don't spam you. Um, and hopefully there'll be useful information. You'll hear about the newest research. We'll show you the tip sheets, but on there, there's a link that says resources for storytellers. You can get the research reports. You can get the tip sheets. We also do have podcasts and live streams about different issues. Um, so there's a lot of the podcast is not as good as this one at all, <laughs> but it's gold, you guys, it's total gold. I really, um, I I'm can't super excited. It was amazing to be there. This is such great information. Now, uh, Yelda, we always ask the same three questions at the end of every episode. So uh, what brings you the most joy when it comes to your work? I mean, things like this, just, you know, and these workshops, like these working with talking to people and seeing, it really just brings me joy in general that research can be useful to somebody. I did it for parents before. And now I really feel just, it just, I'm so grateful to you, Meg, for, for bringing me on because it just, I just really hope you guys can use these things and that they're helpful and that they create, you create content that allows more people to be seen and, and to learn and to grow. And, and, you know, I really believe storytelling shifts culture. So this is what makes me the most joyous. Awesome. Well, you're dog. welcome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <I'm kidding>. Thank <laughs> you. And then the the second question is, what pisses you off about your work? There's a Brooks Barnes article that said that all these executives were, he's a New York Times reporter. All these executives were saying that we overcorrected and just because that this show didn't, movie didn't work. So like bros didn't work. So nobody wants queer romantic comedies. You know, there's always this, one example, like the last duel came out and tanked. Nobody was like, nobody wants two white guys starring in a movie. Nobody says that, right? It's always right. the one example. And that pisses me off. Hmm. Legit. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, finally, Yalda, we always ask, what would you like to most be remembered by when it comes to your work? Um, I really hope I shift the way that people think about um, teens in this industry and adolescence. Sesame Street really shifted um, preschool content. So actually now there are whole divisions on education. They bring in consultants, they bring in researchers. Preschool content, a lot of it is pretty good. Um, and I hope, but you know, once you get to adolescence, it's, and even young adults, you know, adolescence, by the way, goes from 10 to 25. It now goes to 25. Um, so I think that, you know, if we could try to make that content, you know, really have the best and most positive impact, those are the kids. I also think that's what shifts culture. That's when their brains are really flexible. They're searching for identity. They're thinking about new things. And um, they, media is really important to them. And if we can create content that really positively impacts them, we're going to create a better world. That's amazing. Kumbaya. Yeah. Well, thank you so thank much you. for being with us today. It was really powerful. Um, what great tools for our storytellers listening of all different disciplines. Thank you so much. Thank you thank very you. much. And I hope you win. Oh, <laughs> thank you. It's for, it's for a preschool show. It's for a preschool show. Yay! And you got to take a picture of the shoes and send them to us. <laughs> oh, 100%. Oh, well, thank you guys so much. Uh, uh, that was an amazing uh, interview. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. Please drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are 50 reviews away from 700. It is the middle of December. So let's get there in the new year. And you can also check on, out our Patreon for bonus content like additional workshops, guests, and deep dives on story. We had one last night on thematic exercise um, given by Lisan Sater, and it was a profound experience for our uh, participants. Uh, so please uh, come over there because we think we can uh, help you out. Oh, yeah. And uh, don't forget, we are giving away a bunch of free merch uh, this holiday season uh, over at the TSL uh, Instagram page. So check it out and enter to win. And that, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone was Savannah. Welcome to the show, Savannah. <laughs> Thank you. Fabulous uh, co-producer. Uh, and remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.